to make our actions effective, we have to do it. We have to pray. Prayer brings together love and power. It doesn't separate. As one author puts it, that the relationship between love, there's a relationship between love that grows between God and the person who prays. The flowing of power from God to, and especially through, that person. There's power in it. Something is happening when we pray. Paul's prayer is about this, that the young, old, new, almost there, not yet Christian may discover what it means to follow Jesus. To know the all-powerful, all-loving God, and to lay roots into that love, to change direction, enlarge the panoramic, to see and experience the love that can direct us anew. Start experiencing this. Take action. Pray that this is being, that this is happening. And certainly, Paul knows this firsthand. He's seen his life redirected. Just react. His entire life is about that redirection. And for us, our life is about that redirection as well. And he longs that this church, these people that he's writing to, might come to put their faith in King Jesus. That God is going to do something in their lives. And my first instinct when I think about this is to revert back to my own um, Christian experiences. And, and there's words that, although embraces that are, although they, they are, are well-intentioned, they seem good at first, they fail because they're cliche. They might have been true at one point, but as all cliches happen, they fail and fall apart. You might be familiar with this. We might say something like, invite Jesus into your heart. Or to have Jesus into, into your heart. And that's fine, and that's good, but there's something lacking in that. Because um, it, it doesn't capture the, the potential, the beauty that Paul is laying out in this letter. Um, and certainly in our, our Western individualism, we kind of default to the fact that it's all about us. Right? Talk about what God is doing in, in our lives, or um, our personal relationship with God. Right? Um, I teach high school English, and I used to teach at a, a Christian school, and we would talk about the, the worst ways to break up with someone. Um, and one of the worst ways to break up with someone if you're a Christian is, I just need to focus on my relationship with God. It works, <laughs> it does, but it doesn't really mean anything. Right? And no one ever is really going to do that. I need to work on my relationship with God. And if we happen to accept Jesus into our lives, somehow he lives within us. Um, it's true. Certainly there's an aspect to that, but it fails on something, right? It doesn't quite go as, at least in, in what Paul's vision that he's laying out for us. And in fact, the New Testament doesn't even use that language. More often it talks about, uh, uses the phrase to be in Christ rather than have Christ dwell within us. And when I was a kid, I had this picture, I would see this picture um, and in my mind now of inviting Jesus to come into your life, I think of white Jesus knocking an old English country house with, with um, floor all over the place. And that's the image that I have. It just doesn't seem right. It's kind of all about us. No, instead, God's doing something else. Instead, he says, view yourselves as family. Plant those roots a little bit deeper with the people you worship with. Confess with sacrifice with, give with, sing songs with, cry with, break bread with, allow your roots to deepen with them. And look at verse, verse 17. We root our hearts in Jesus, that we may know the breadth, the length, the height, 
the depth to know King Jesus' love. See how deep this love goes? No one knows its depth. That's terrifying. I'll inspire. A new panoramic. I think of Nathan's height, right? Where he's, he's on the top of that summit, and he sees as far as he can see, and he can imagine the heights that he had to climb. Oh, can you imagine all the sweating? <laughs> the heights that he's at, right? And, and even there, as far as you can see, it still has dimension. There's still limits to it. A few years ago, I took an astronomy class um, in college, and it was a part of a lab, and we would do nighttime observations. And so there was one that we would do nighttime observations, and we had to look at planets that were out Venus, Mars, Saturn. Um, and it was awesome. It was so cool to be able to do that. And I remember looking at Saturn um, and, and being so inspired by it. Because I'd seen it in pictures, documentaries, textbooks, but to see it in real life was amazing. And I remember looking into this, um, into this telescope and seeing Saturn and the planet and the rings. And it was so cool. Um, but what was amazing to me was not the planet and the rings, but it was the space between the rings and the planet. Because I knew in my class that for something to be so small, but so visible, so far away, it would have to be so big. And to kind of bring you into my own mindset, I had an existential crisis about how small I was in the universe. But that's awe-inspiring. And even then, God's love is larger than that, right? To see something so far away, but to be so small, would have to be so a couple weeks ago, we took our son to, uh, to Santa Cruz for the first time, and he saw the Pacific Ocean. He did not like it at all. <laughs> too cold. Yeah, he liked the sand. Um, but we, like, let him into it, and he kind of put his feet in, like, mm, nope, not going to do it. It's just too big. Everything's too big because he's three feet tall. Um, but the ocean was too big. Breathtaking. New dimensions to God's life. Paul's letter. Paul's letters in the, in the New Testament are remarkable. And so many of them, he writes with honest sincerity about the community that he writes to. And he has to. He has to aim to solve real-world problems. We have a tendency to read the New Testament and think, oh, it's just this didactic thing that we have to, to teach us about Christian theology and it lives in this, in this ivory tower. But when Paul's writing to these people, he's trying to solve problems. He writes, um, he's sarcastic at times. He's ironic, he's powerful, he, he's filled with vision, but he's filled with love. What is most remarkable about this is that he writes because he finds himself required to write. He, he talks to them because he loves them. Even the ones that he hasn't met, he loves them. He has arguments, he settles disputes, he has to humble the proud. But at the center of all of it is love. No matter where he goes, always centers on love. Find yourself in this family, these new dimensions. In Romans, he gives this, this large argument um, about how God has always, has always been involved in time and nature. And then he stops and he says, but your love must be real. In Corinthians, he says you can have talents, you can have treasures, you can have, you can have gifts, you can have all of these things. But if you don't love... It's useless. It's nothing. The reason why he writes is because he loves. Our, our world and our culture mixes this word in a variety of forms and connotations. 
I love Chipotle, but I don't love Chipotle as much as I love my wife, right? There's different ways to talk about this word. Or when I tell my students, there's three women that I love in my life. My mother, my wife, and Emily Dickinson. <laughs> you play with words all the time. When Paul writes about love in this verse and in other sections of the New Testament, he's using one specific word. In Greek, there's multiple words to describe this love. This word that he uses is agape. Repeat after me. Agape. Brilliant Greek scholars. This word has deep connotations with charity, sacrifice, familial love. So it's interesting that when he, when he writes about being rooted in King Jesus' love, it's this love that expands around us. But even now, our language fails. Because what does that mean? What does that look like? And when language fails, we have to build images to show us. The love that Paul routinely refers to is the kind of love that looks like a family that surrounds a, a, a grieving, um, uh, someone passing away in the hospital. It's the kind of love that looks like a teacher that gives up time so that they can not only make sure their student passes, but knows the material and thrives. It's the kind of love that looks like a community that says enough to racial bias and police brutality. It's the kind of, of love that, uh, that looks like not demanding the last word in a Facebook debate. It's the kind of love that looks foolish. It's unknown. It's a different kind of power. In his novel, the, the brothers Karamazov, Fyodor Dostoevsky, tells this beautiful little story called um, The Grand Inquisitor. And it goes like this. Um, in a town in Spain in the 16th century, Christ arrives again, apparently being reborn. As he walks through the streets, people begin to gather around him, um, staring. He, he begins to heal the sick, his minish, um, and his ministry begins to flourish again. But then it's immediately interrupted um, by the arrival of a powerful cardinal who orders his guards to arrest Christ. You can see the iron, right? Later that night, the cardinal shows up, and the Grand Inquisitor visits uh, Christ's cell and explains why he has taken him prisoner why he can't allow Christ to perform his works. And throughout this lecture, Christ just listens quietly. The Grand Inquisitor goes on and on about how Christ's presence is ruining um, the church's position and power, and it's taking away from what it's trying to do. The irony thickens. After his lecture, um, the Inquisitor waits for a reply. He expects something bitter, something angry, something terrible. But instead... Christ approaches the Inquisitor and in silence gently kisses him on the lips. And it says, um, it says Christ approaches the Inquisitor in silence and gently kisses him on the bloodless 90-year-old lips. That was his whole answer. That's the quote of the book. That was his whole answer. His only reply to the Grand Inquisitor. The Inquisitor gets, gets mad. He's furious because that's not what he expected. And he banishes Christ. He says, leave, never come back. But that kiss burns on his heart the rest of his life. Now this is interesting to me, um, because it's, just, it's so good, and ironic, filled with rich literary whatever. What interests me, moreover, um, is that this story is filled with allegory, with evil, with power, with struggle, with free will. What always um, kind of fascinates me is this story is told between a conversation between two brothers. Um, as Yvonne, the one that tells this story, to his brother, um, uh, the other brother becomes upset. This other brother reflects on Yvonne's life, the twisted, basis parts of his life. 
and he's, he's disturbed by this twisted story. Um, but as Yvonne's brother listens to, listens to him, Yvonne questions him. He says, will you give up on me? Will you renounce me? Yvonne's brother stands, he walks towards him, and he kisses his brother on his lips. Yvonne accuses his brother of plagiarism, um, but it's this love, this simple grand gesture that serves as a symbol of longevity and faithfulness. These are true images, I think, that we can reflect on and think about what love is. And, and I affirm these theological truths. God loves you. He loves you. Paul writes to this church because he loves this church to be a part of this new family, to break the category of who we think matter, and to do something worthwhile. God loves you. There's a new dimension to this. And that's true. He does. He loves you. But how often do you stop to think that God is fond of He's fond of you. He cares about the things that you care about. His heart breaks for the things that your heart breaks about. He's fond of you. That's a new dimension to God's love. He's fond of you. I don't know where your, your journey of, of spirituality is taking place. I thank you for joining us. Know this is a safe place to explore that, to ask those questions. I don't know if you have been hurt by people in the church. I don't know if you have been hurt by, by ministers, by pastors, um, by, by whatever, but know this. God is fond of you. He's fond of you. He loves you. And it's this story that the gospel is rooted. No matter how far you go away, he's still fond of you. And as, and as soon as you go away, as soon as you turn around, he's there waiting for you. Desperately almost recklessly, foolishly wanting to pursue you. That's a different kind of power. It's a power that, that changes our lives. Brennan Manning write, writes this. He says, God loves you as you are, not as you ought to be. He loves you here, now, today. He's fond of you. And this is what it looks like to be in this new family. And once all of this is in place, the rest begins to emerge. Then we can do something new. New possibilities open up to us. New tasks begin. New energy fills us to accomplish those tasks. But this isn't a magic trick. This isn't a thing of, okay, if I just, if I just love people, we got, you know, if I just do this, if I just pray, it's going to be this magic trick, and I can figure my life out, right? It's not like that. This isn't um, a new yoga routine to try out. It isn't a new meditation. It isn't a, a new steps you have to follow to pursue your best life now. Um, it's not any of that. It's, it's a paradox, right? It's, it's a struggle. It's a journey. But look at verse 20 again. Read it carefully. Think of what God can do in you and through you. Think of what he can do in us as a community, not just in the city life, but in Sacramento and in the church around the world. Think of what he can do in us individually. He exceeds that. Double it. Triple it. The power is not ours to do it what we like. We get to see it work. We get to be a part of that work. We get to see what God is doing. My friends, be fond of each other. Because God is fond of you. Pray. Let the power of King Jesus root itself in you into God's immeasurable love and to love fully.
hearts. That we might have the holy boldness to struggle for justice until we die. Give us visions larger than those we create for ourselves. And root us in humility that we might climb toward the heights through your service.